My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Welcome to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, the ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Mineville, Pennsylvania. If you heard that Jesus Christ was coming through our area, would you try to go see him? I sure would. Imagine for a second with me that you were on your way to a location where you heard Jesus Christ was passing through. Would you want to hear him teach, or would you rather just watch his actions and listen to him? Over the last 18 months on this broadcast, Pastor Jones has read and explained Jesus' messages as recorded in the New Testament. If some of you are just tuning into this broadcast and would like to study what Jesus taught as recorded by those who heard him preach, feel free to access our podcast of the Messages of Christ. You can find it on the web at radiobowl.com slash Baptist. I'll mention that address again at the end of the broadcast. Yeah, I can imagine that if Christ were passing through our area, others of our listeners would prefer just to follow Christ, listen in on his conversations, and watch him. That's what our new series on the methods of Christ is meant to accomplish. Pastor Jones plans to take you on a journey as we follow Jesus around during his earthly ministry as recorded in the Gospels in the New Testament. We'll watch what Jesus does, try to place ourselves there, and try to understand the lessons God intends for us to take from observing his Son. So why not grab a Bible if you have one nearby, turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, and let's take a look at Christ's baptism and see what we can learn from it that might help you and I in our life journey today. Well, it's great to be with you again. This is Pastor Lane Jones for the Beacon of Hope broadcast. And uh, we're going to be talking today on a subject that, quite honestly, is not an easy one to figure out. Um, and that is the baptism of Christ. The facts are not that difficult to understand, but the motive is. And uh, have you ever tried to figure out a person's motive? I remember years ago when I was a school teacher, a young fella uh, came out a door without seeing that I was standing there and turned around and just slammed it behind him. I assume someone was on the other side of the door. And uh, so all of a sudden he turns around, oh, he sees the teacher standing right in front of him. And I said to him, I said, Nicholas, uh, why did you slam the door? And uh, Nicholas uh, stands there for a second and, and literally says out loud, why did I slam the door? And I could tell Nicholas was trying to make something up and I just stopped him right there. I figured I wouldn't uh, give him any more chance to lie. I said, look, Nicholas, don't do it again and, uh, you know, don't make a excuse to me. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting, though, trying to figure out motive, especially when we're trying to figure out what God is thinking. Um, and yet Jesus is going to be baptized, and uh, it's quite an interesting uh, subject as to why he did it. And so I'm going to tell you what I think the Scripture is teaching, and I'll encourage you to follow along if you can. In Matthew chapter 3, we're going to pick up the story there. And so uh, as we, uh, we're going to pray in just a second, I want you to see if you agree with me as to what I'm thinking as to why Jesus was baptized. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, give us grace. We not merely want to try to solve maybe a little bit of a mystery as far as what uh, your motivation was and why Christ our Savior followed you and believer, followed in, in baptism with John the Baptist. But Lord, we do ask that you will guide us in this and give us understanding in our discussion. And Lord, teach us eternal truths that we need to grab onto from the life of our Lord as we study again uh, how he, how he went about life, how he acted. And so please give us grace and wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the second in a series on the methods of Christ. How did Jesus actually live as he's on earth? And we come to his baptism. And let's talk about the context, first of all. Um, it, the uh, Jews were looking, uh, in Jesus' day, were looking for a man by the name of Elijah. And they're looking for his return. Matter of fact, 
If you're in Matthew chapter 3, if you did turn there, the last that's the first book of the New Testament. If you went right in front of that to the last book of the Old Testament, which is the book of Malachi, I'm going to read uh, the last two verses of the Old Testament. It's Malachi chapter 4, and it's verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction or with a curse. Now, uh, so the Jews were looking for Elijah's return. Wouldn't it be great to see that blessing come today, hearts of fathers being turned back to their children and children to their fathers? And so many believed in Jesus' day that Elijah's return would precede the coming of God's Messiah, and I believe in in some uh, sense they were right. Uh, Now, many wondered then, when John the Baptist comes on the scene, if he himself is Elijah or even the Messiah. Now, this wasn't as wild an idea as you might imagine. Uh, First of all, there was the prophecy at John the Baptist's birth in Luke chapter 1, and in in verse 11 to 17, you can find this. Now, this was a prophecy given to John's dad. I think that he may very well have repeated this to others around him. Um, Certainly, Luke finds out about this. Could have been by direct inspiration of the Lord. He's writing under inspiration, but it also could be that he ran across some people who knew what what Zacharias, Jonathan, uh, uh, John the Baptist's dad had said that the angel told him. But listen to Luke chapter one and verse 17. It says, "He also, speaking of John the Baptist, will be go before him." That's speaking of the Messiah. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist was prophesied to go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, he also had a message that was threefold. And I want to read you now. We're in Matthew chapter 3. I'm starting at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the Jewish people understood the kingdom of heaven to mean this is the promised kingdom, and the promised Messiah then must be on the scene. And then he says, so he's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he, this is now Matthew writing about this, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, let me be clear. The prophecy I read you was from the last book of the Bible, Malachi, and yet Matthew says John the Baptist is the fulfillment of a prophecy concerning that came from the lips of Isaiah and from his pen. Now, uh, again, very similar, though, their their impact. The, uh, the person representing Elijah would, would precede the Messiah and say that the king is, is coming and turn the hearts of fathers to the children, etc. But John the Baptist would do something very similar. Now, not only does he have a similar message to, John, to Elijah's uh, prophesied uh, message, but he has a similar appearance even. Second uh, Kings chapter one and verse eight, which is talking about Elijah the prophet, indicates that Elijah may, might have dressed similar to John. Matter of fact, the the uh, English Standard Version reads that he wore a garment of hair. Uh, you find that also in some of your other translations. And the leather belt that John the Baptist is described as wearing um, would also be like Elijah's. Listen to what it says. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Now, not just, I don't believe God is merely giving us some trivia about John the Baptist, but he's pointing out similarities to Elijah. 
And that's why I think people thought maybe he is the prophet Elijah. Now, his diet, again, is interesting, is it not? Um, Locusts and wild honey. So you remember that Elijah lived for three and a half years during a drought. John is eating a rather difficult diet out in the middle of, of nowhere in a very dry region. And so and evidently many people were talking about the possibility that John was either the prophet Elijah or Messiah himself. And that's actually what John was asked. In John chapter 1, verses, 29, uh, verses 19 to 23, people were asking John the Baptist, are you in fact the Christ? And he said, no. Their second question, are you Elijah? John said, no. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, exactly what Matthew said he was. Now, John called uh, people to the baptism of repentance. Now, what does this involve? Well, I just looked this up again today because I wanted to, to make sure that I was correct on this. But if you or I, who may be Gentiles, I'm, I'm not Jewish by descent as far as I know, um, you and I who would be Gentiles, we would, uh, our, if we wanted to convert to Judaism, one of the last rites we would go through, and there'd be a number of things involved, but one of the last things that would happen is you would need to be baptized as a convert to Judaism. And it's interesting that John is not baptizing merely Gentiles at his baptism. He is, and, and maybe even by and large, maybe the vast majority of them, were Jewish people. So John's baptism is 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 fat is totally different to, from what was going on up to his day. And so listen as verse 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 3 it says then uh, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. Now that's an incredible thing in itself. John's not preaching in the halls of the temple or in in, in the uh, in the vast uh, courts or different places around that complex. John's not even preaching some corner in Jerusalem. John is out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere. And so people have to really go out of their way to get to one of his uh, 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 preaching times. And yet people were flocking out to him. So the region of Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by, by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So what is John preaching? Well, he's preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah then is on is is on the scene, and you need to repent of your sins because you're not getting into God's kingdom as a sinner. You need to be baptized for your sins just like a common Gentile would. He is saying, and if I'll, I'll read this in just a moment, he is saying you do not get to heaven by who your parents are, by all the things that they have done. You don't get to heaven by your nationality. You need to be repentant for your sins and put your faith in the coming Messiah. That is what John is saying. And John even warned the religious leaders of his day to repent. Because again, so many people were going out, there begins to be a stir around around uh, Israel itself about this man who's preaching out in the middle of nowhere, and people wondering, is this one of the great prophets um, rising up? Is this Elijah, the prophecy of Elijah? Who is this? So in verse 7 it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. Now these are the two major religious groups of Jesus' day. The Pharisees on the conservative side, they they would say that they believed the scriptures completely. Um, They would say that they believed in the resurrection and miracles. They believed that Messiah was going to come. These people 
were supposed to be a um, um, you know the the religious conservatives of the day. Now the Sadducees, another religious group, they are um, they are the liberals of the day. They they do not believe the Bible is authoritative. Uh, the Old Testament. Remember, there's no New Testament at this point. They do not believe that their Old Testament books are authoritative, except for the first five. Now they're very strict on those first five, but they do not believe that the rest of it is authoritative, and and they do not see the resurrection or miracles in the those sections. They somehow explain all of that away. And so these two groups are coming out, and they are watching these common people, many of them sinful people, being baptized because these people are being warned that that the Messiah is coming, the kingdom is coming, and you're not ready, and you need to be repentant of your sins and turn to this this coming king, uh, otherwise you'll be lost forever. And so people are responding to this. So when it says when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John does not you know you know follow the book that we now have uh, around today. You know how to win friends and influence people, or when people come to my church, you know you give them a nice pen and you. Uh, you encourage them and thank them for coming. That's, John's not doing that with these religious leaders. Notice what he says to them. I'm in, I'm in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. He says to them, you brood of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John is telling these religious leaders, you need to repent, and you need to demonstrate genuine repentance. Now, what does that involve? Well, it's rather interesting. In Luke chapter 3, um, uh, verse 10 to 14 records the same um, uh, thing going on when John preaches to people. And they ask him that question, what do you mean? What can we do to show that we're truly repentant? So I'm going to read that. But while uh, maybe you're, you may be turning there with me, Luke chapter 3, I'm going to start with verse 10. Let me just say that many of you have run into this. Matter of fact, if you've been around uh, professing Christian people very much, you, about all of us have run into, the kind of person that talks a good line. They could tell you the time and the date when they received Christ. And quite honestly, they live like the devil. And that is not salvation. Genuine salvation is a free gift. And that free gift, I'm convinced the scripture is saying, is an eternal transaction. And a person, when they come to Christ as Lord and Savior, I do believe that that salvation is secure. But may I say to you that the person who claims to have, whatever they did, prayed a prayer, got baptized, joined the church, whatever their story is, if their life is not changed, uh, we're not the judge, I'm not the judge, you're not the judge, but you have every right to wonder if that person is truly a born-again Christian because true uh, 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 Christians live a different life. Their life is different. And that's what John is preaching. By the way, Jesus would preach the same thing. You would find, you would find, um, he says, except you repent, you will all like per- likewise perish. That's Jesus. But listen to John as they come to him and they, and the crowds asked him, I'm in Luke chapter three, verse 10, what then shall we do? John, you're telling us to show fruits of, re- to show evidence of our repentance. Okay. How do we do that? He answered them, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Okay then we're surrendering our possessions to the Lord, aren't we? And eight, if I can help another person in need, I need to do that. Whoever has food is to do likewise. So again, I'm sharing my possessions with people. I'm not hanging on and hoarding things for myself. If you find a greedy, selfish person, again, I'm not saying I can't judge them. I will tell you this, that does not sound like a Christian. 
Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Now, these are people who are working for the Roman government. The, many of them were known to be cheats, to be, to be thieves, to, to scarf off the top, to charge people extra and pocket the money. So these people, tax collectors, are coming to John and they say, okay, what do we do? He said unto them, collect no more than what you are authorized to do. Be honest. That's how you show your repentant. How about this one? Verse 13, and, and, and he said to them, um, I'm sorry, verse uh, 14 says, and the soldiers also asked him and said, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. What's he saying? He's saying when you are serious about repentance, your life is different. That's genuine conversion. That's true repentance. That's what John was preaching. Now, uh, I'm in back to Matthew chapter 3. I'm reading verse 9. He's talking, remember, again, to these religious leaders who've come to see his baptism. He already called them a brood of snakes. Now he says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able of these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So you don't, don't imagine that you're saved, you're on your way to heaven as a Christian because of something that happened to you as an infant or uh, by your birth. Because your parents were, were, uh, Christians, and maybe they baptized you as a baby. That doesn't get you in. John is talking to people who had gone through the rite of circumcision, and they would be what would be considered a, a people of good standing in the nation of Israel. They're religious leaders, and John saying, "Trust none of that." Again, this is similar to the idea of someone being baptized as a baby today and say, "Well, that's my ticket into heaven." No, it's not. No, it's not. What is your life like? Are you a rebel against the authority of Jesus Christ, who really is the king? We'll see that before this passage is done. Or are, are you living life for yourself? Or are you truly showing by a changed life that, yes, I am not trusting my own righteousness, my own goodness. I put my faith in the Messiah. Have you become submissive to the king? I believe John is saying here that God has no problem uh, with raising up physical descendants to Abraham, but being a physical descendant of Abraham is not salvation. The miracle is when God transforms a wicked rebel like you or like me against the Lord and makes him a saint. That is a miracle. When I say a saint, I'm talking about a person who is loyal subject of Jesus Christ. So John says you need to show fruits of repentance. Do not think that you're on your way to heaven because of your birth status. John says next, the judgment is coming. In verse 10, he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. You cut the tree roots down, the tree's coming down. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, John goes on to say, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what's that fire picturing? It's obviously picturing hell. And so John is saying, "There's uh, your time's uh, coming up soon. You, you need to prepare to meet your Lord. To pray, as the uh, Old Testament prophet said, prepare to meet thy God. So there is a sense in which we can say to any generation that God's judgment is coming for them. It's coming for you. It's coming for me. And that's why, uh, why is John giving him this warning now, though? Well, because John is saying the Christ is coming. You say, well, isn't that what Christians talk about today? Yeah. yeah it's a different coming. Uh, John was talking about him coming um, uh, to earth at that time. And John, I don't think, understood all the ramifications of that. And we'll talk about some of that as we move through here. 
But he's talking about the Christ coming on the scene in his day, and of course that is the when Jesus is just a uh, just a few uh, days away when John's uh, starting to preach this. I think I was listening to a good scholar, I think it was John MacArthur um, earlier, and he was saying that John was probably preaching for about six months before he actually identified Jesus as the as the Savior, as the Messiah. So John is saying, hey, Christ is coming to bring great blessing, but he's also coming to bring great judgment. This is how he puts it. He says, I baptized you with water for repentance. And so that was their first way of showing repentance was baptism, uh, following God and following uh, the Lord in baptism. Basically what they were saying is, I'm not, I'm not claiming that I'm good enough to get into God's kingdom. I am asking God you to forgive me for my sins and I'm putting my faith in this coming Messiah. Now today, we put our faith in the Messiah who's already come, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross for our sins. And so our baptism looks back on that event. And we do that baptism not to save us, but to to evidence uh, the, the salvation that God gives us through Christ. So you'll notice that Christ is coming then to bring great blessing. He says, I'm, I, I'm baptizing you with the water of repentance. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to hold up his shoes. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And those are the two choices that we have. The saved will receive the Holy Spirit and safety and God's power upon their lives. But the lost will be sifted out and sent to hell. That's what John is saying. That's what the word of God has clearly said for all of us. And John's statement that the Messiah would be a would thoroughly purge his floor, by the way, we'll say that in just a moment. He says, um, uh, his winnowing fork is in his hand. A winning fork, if you can think of a pitchfork, uh, those of you that are familiar with any kind of farm equipment would understand a pitchfork. And it's got a number of tines on it. And in those days, um, it wasn't just merely used for, uh, you know, scooping up hay or straw. It was that type of a, of a, of a tool would be used to winnow, um, barley or some other form of grain, wheat. What they would do is they would, they would put the, the forks into a pile of, of the grain. Then they would throw it up into the air repeatedly. And at the, the, the violence of, of, of diving into that pile and throwing it up in the air, uh, would eventually begin to break those uh, the, the the grain off of the stalks. The stalks called chaff tend to blow away in the wind. So you'd put the uh, threshing floor in a place where there was a good breeze that would typically come through there. And as you continually go in and throw uh, the, uh, the the stalks up in the air, the, the grain begins to uh, fall off them, and, it, and it's heavy, it's dense, it does not blow away, and the other parts of the wheat or the, or the barley, whatever it is, they begin to blow away. That's called chaff. And what John is saying is Jesus is going to come in. The Christ is going to come in. He doesn't know his name at this point. But he is going to winnow. He is going to separate the true wheat, the believers who are genuinely his children from those that aren't. And then he says this, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. Means we're going to separate the good from the evil, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's the safety and, and, and the blessing of the Holy Spirit, because John said he's going to baptize with the Spirit. But there's also the warning of, of judgment. 
So no saved person is going to be confused with a lost person when God winnows this thing, and no lost person is going to be accepted as a saved person. So how would you summarize John the Baptist and his message to the nation? Well, it's very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's exactly what he's saying, chapter 3, verse 2. Now, on that scene of John preaching to people, multitudes coming to him, some obviously coming out of curiosity, many people being converted and, and realizing, hey, I'm no better than a Gentile, um, even though I'm a Jewish person in good standing. I need to repent of my sins and prepare for the... Because John is saying, uh, and he's obviously a prophet of God, he's saying that the king is here and the kingdom is right on top of us, so I need to prepare. That's exactly what these people were doing. And in that context, I want you to notice Jesus Christ enters in. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now, uh, let me explain. Galilee is in the northern part of Israel. It's quite, it's, it's, it's quite high up in the nation. It's up by, again, the Sea of Galilee, which is why this region's named after that. And so it's a quite a ways from Jerusalem, let alone the wilderness of Judea. Jesus is going to have to go way out of his way from where he's living and where he's been um, um, working and other things. Uh, he's going to have to go way out of his way to get to John the Baptist. And yet Jesus makes that trek. And he goes out into the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere, and he shows up at one of John's meetings. Now let me, end, let me say to you that Christ up to this point has not really been showing who he is. Okay, this is not, uh, matter of fact, um, if you look at the life of Christ, um, he hasn't performed a miracle yet. Um, he's, 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 uh, he's not identified as to who he is yet. And, and, and so Galilee is the northern part of Israel, and Judea is in the southern part, and he goes way out of his way. He goes out to see John in the wilderness. And he's going out there, actually, to be baptized by John. Now, when Jesus gets there, verse 14 John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? What I find so fascinating about that statement is that Jesus has not yet still been identified as the Messiah, and yet John feels unworthy to baptize him. Now you have to say, well, well, how do these people know each other? Well, I'm convinced by this verse that they did. First of all, we know that, that Mary, Jesus' mother, was related to John's mother, Elizabeth, and that Mary, when she first began to, uh, uh, be, be, was uh, pregnant, expecting Christ, uh, and, and uh, uh, God had placed the, the Christ child within her, remember, she's a virgin, she runs immediately to Elizabeth because that was one of the signs that the angel gave her. He said, your cousin Elizabeth is with child. She's six months along. So Mary goes I think partly to get encouragement from Elizabeth, maybe to get out of the area for a little bit, but she also goes to, I think, to confirm that that, that the angel really said this to her and that this is really going to happen to her. And so she goes down, if you remember, to Elizabeth. It's in found, this is accounts found in Luke chapter 1. And when she gets there, the babe in Elizabeth's womb leaps within her. When she hears Mary's voice, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and says, the babe within me leaps for joy when he heard the 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 uh, the the uh, mother of of the Messiah um, come through the door, and of course there's a uh, so that baby within Elizabeth was John the Baptist. So he's about six months older than Jesus, 
And um, did they know each other? I think it's very likely that they did before this before this event. And imagine with me, John the Baptist, one of the most godly men to ever live. And yet, he seems to know Christ before Jesus gets there. I don't. He's not been identified yet as the Messiah. We'll we'll see that in a moment. And John, who I believe knew Christ ahead of time, said, "I don't. I should be being baptized baptized by you. I I, I don't. I'm not worthy to baptize you." Why? Well, I think he'd been around Christ and seen the huge difference. We can't even imagine the difference between Jesus Christ and anybody else we've ever known. Christ doesn't merely act righteous. He's not merely righteous, you know, most of the time. He is righteous all of the time. And John seems to know that right when Jesus walks up to him. Um, now, God, again, how do you know, you say, Pastor, how do you know that God has not identified Jesus yet uh, to John? Well, because John would say later on, and I'll read these verses to you in a few moments, but John would say that he did not know who the Messiah was going to be, except that when God told him that whoever he saw, the Holy Spirit descending on him, and 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 resting on him, that was the Messiah. And that doesn't happen till after John baptizes him. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. So, let's go on. John rightly feels unworthy to baptize Jesus. You also notice that Jesus is not repenting. He doesn't deny that John isn't worthy. Jesus answers him. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He's not denying that that John isn't worthy to baptize him. He's not denying that at all. But he says, just allow it to be so. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, then John, consented. So Jesus is not saying, oh, I have to sin I need to repent of. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, I need to fulfill God's plan. So I think a legitimate question to ask at this point, and I'm sorry it took me a while to get here, but here's our question. What is the plan? (laughs) Why is Jesus being baptized? Well, let me give you three different thoughts on this that have rendered my mind, and maybe maybe you've thought of something different. You can feel free to share it with me at your convenience. But here are three thoughts that I thought. Well, is Jesus leading us? Is and I've I've heard many people talk about this. Is he being an example to us? And I think there's a certain sense in that. In that, in, in that he is. And I know I heard a good um, godly preacher of years gone by that said, no, it can't be because Jesus is sinless and we're not. But the reality is that before a person is baptized in believer's baptism, all of our sins have been washed away. We've been forgiven. Doesn't mean we're perfect on this earth. Doesn't mean we still don't have a sin nature. We're nowhere near our, our Christ. We're nowhere near him. But we have been forgiven for all of our sins. And and so Jesus is, in many ways, an example to us. Now, you think about this as well. Christ could have been baptized as a baby if he'd wanted to. He could have been. He wasn't. He, he comes and he's 30 years of age. Luke tells us, uh, just about 30 years of age in Luke chapter 3, he tells us that. And so he could have been baptized at 12. He could have been. He chose to be baptized as an adult. Now, again, I think there's reasons behind this. We're going to have to think about motive. But um, I will tell you something else, that every baptism in the New Testament, and, and I'm confident of this, I've, I've, I've studied this out, every baptism in the New Testament is after conversion. You won't find a single one before people are converted. And Jesus is an example 
of being baptized at, with full understanding of what he's doing. Number two, Jesus is identifying with John's gospel, and I think that's also true as well. John's gospel is going to be a actually a critical question when Jesus is late in his ministry, and people are trying to trying to discredit him, even just uh, days before the crucif- crucifixion. And so they actually asked him, they said, well, by what authority are you doing these things? And you know what Jesus does to answer them? He said, I'll tell you what, I'll answer your question if you answer one question of mine first. And that is this, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Was it godly or ungodly, the baptism of John? Isn't it interesting he goes back to that? And the religious leaders of Jesus' day were not interested tragically in answering truthfully. They said, they got together, they literally did this, they got together, they said, well, if we answer that uh, it's from heaven, then they're going to say, uh, Jesus is going to obviously come back and say, well, why didn't you believe him? And they said, well, if we say it's it's of men, that this isn't of God, they said the, the crowd is going to stone us. They, they all believe that John's a prophet. John had died by then. And so Jesus goes back. Is it interesting? So he certainly is identifying with John's preaching and John's gospel. I think that's true, but I don't think that's the primary reason why he's being baptized. A third thought, and I think this is really what's going on, is Jesus is being sanctified. That word sanctified means to be set apart as the future king of Israel. And there's two ways it's going to happen. First of all, by anointing, and secondly, by identification. Now, what I find interesting is that in the very first uh, two kings of the nation of Israel, this same pattern took place, and that is there was an anointing and an identification way before there was a coronation, before they were actually crowned as king. In fact, in, in the first king's case, Saul's case, it was probably months before, or at least weeks before, uh, he was actually coronated as the king. And his anointing and identification in the second king, King David, the greatest king of Israel, and Jesus as a direct descendant of his, his anointing and identification happened years before he was ever made the king of Israel. Let me, let me show you these examples. Uh, first of all, let me talk about anointing. What's he anointed with? Well, let's, let's, let's keep reading. John uh, didn't want to baptize him. Jesus says we need to do it to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. I'm at uh, Matthew four, uh, 3 and verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Isn't that interesting? So that's the sign that John was given, and you'll notice it happens after he baptized him and after he'd already protested that he wasn't worthy to do it. So that is the anointing, that the Holy Spirit has not only come upon Jesus, but he is resting upon him. Now you say, well, boy, Jesus is God. Why does he need the Holy Spirit's anointing? Well, the best thing I can tell you is this that Jesus Christ, though he is God, is not exercising, and I've talked about this on different occasions, he's not exercising all of his attributes. He really is walking in the power of the Holy Spirit without any limitations because he is perfect. He's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit to do his ministry. Now, Luke is also records the baptism of Jesus uh, uh, by John the Baptist. And it's found in Luke chapter 3. And then after that baptism, it goes into Jesus' genealogy and uh, all kinds of, um, of just names. 
the very next event in Jesus' life is in Luke chapter 4, and it starts with verse 1, and listen to what it says. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Isn't it interesting that after Jesus' baptism, Luke is specifically pointing out he is, he is a full of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to skip down the same chapter, Luke chapter 4, at four again in verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Now, it is showing again, Luke is referencing the fact that Jesus is living in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's not merely exercising his own abilities as God in the flesh. He has actually submitted that to the Lord, and he's going under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would, would submit to you that power came upon him at his baptism. That is a special, that's why I call it the sanctification of Christ. The idea is that he is being set apart as the future king of Israel, but to do a work on this earth while he was here in his public ministry. Let me keep reading. This is the same, I'm, I'm right in Luke chapter 4, still I'm at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus had grown up in that synagogue. He had evidently read many times before in that synagogue. And yet now, he reads this verse after his baptism and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And remember, when the Holy Spirit descends from heaven, it not just, it not just lands on him. You know, you see the pictures and the, whole, and the dove comes down and it lands on him. And it just, he's, what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is resting on him. And don't think a dove is sitting on his shoulder the whole time. It's a, it was just a, a manifestation to show what was going on, and that is God had given a special anointing to his son to carry out the public ministry. Let me show you another reference to this. This is in Acts chapter 10. The apostle Peter is, is explaining to an audience that would not know the full gospel about Jesus Christ. It's Cornelius and his loved ones who are very much interested in knowing about Jesus. But they didn't know very much about him at this point. So Peter's kind of going to bring him up to speed. Okay, and listen to what Peter says. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation one who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I'm in, in uh, Acts chapter 10, if you're trying to flip there, and I'm at, starting at verse 36. I just uh, And it says, As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. There's the ministry of John the Baptist. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. When did that happen? At his baptism. He says it right there. He anointed him with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good, etc. So the anointing of Christ, he set apart as the future king of Israel, just like what happened with King Saul 
And by the way, just like happened with King David. Let me, let me show you that uh, momentarily. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, and starting with verse 1, we have the setting apart, or the sanctification, the setting apart of the first king of Israel, King Saul. It says this for Samuel chapter ten verse one. Then Saul took, excuse me. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, "Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over His people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies? And this shall be the sign that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over His heritage." Now he literally took a physical oil, poured it over Saul's head. But it wasn't merely that. He says God is not just giving you this physical sign, but he's actually anointing you. He's setting you apart. He's sanctifying you to be the next, to be the first king of Israel and to deliver them from oppression. Now I'm skipping down, same chapter, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10. I'm skipping down to verse 6. It says this, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds uh, to do, for God is with you. Now, I find very interesting about that statement. He's saying that when you're now anointed as the king, that God is going to empower you to do the work he wants you to do. So whatever situation you're involved in, this anointing means that you are able to do uh, whatever God uh, has you to do as king. It's the ability to be king. Now, I'm skipping down to verse 9 of the same chapter. It says, when he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. Saul wasn't king yet, not coronated yet. This uh, anointing was, took place before really anybody knew that Saul was going to be king. But in, their, in the setting apart of the future king of Israel, there is an anointing, and then there's the second aspect, and that is an identification. So these are the two things that you find at the baptism of Jesus. There's the same things that you find with these first two kings of Israel, an anointing and an identification. The anointing uh, comes upon the person that gives them the ability then to, to perform the uh, task that, that God has given them to do. The identification is this is you. This is what God has for you to do. Now I'm going to point out the same thing in the, Israel's greatest king before Jesus, and that is King, uh, uh, king David. In 1 Cam Samuel chapter 16, David is just a shepherd boy. He's young, and God has told Jesse, excuse me, told uh, uh, Samuel the, the prophet. And by the way, Samuel has functioned and as uh, helping in the priesthood. He's functioned with that with with Eli, the high priest, for uh, a number of years. Well, now Samuel's an old man. Eli's dead, and God calls upon Samuel to anoint a new king because Saul has gone the wrong direction, and he's become proud. And so, in First Samuel chapter sixteen. David uh, Samuel has been told to go to Bethlehem, and there's a there's a there's a man there that's going to be the next king of Israel. But as he goes, uh, he comes across a, a man by the name of Jesse. God uh, Samuel God told Samuel that Jesse would be the the father of this uh, this son, and then Samuel said to Jesse in verse eleven, "Are all your sons here?" Because he looked at seven different sons that Jesse had, and none of them was the right guy. And Jesse says, uh, "There remains yet." the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. I mean, Jesse doesn't even bring him to this. He figures that it'd be one of the other seven um, uh, that would be the right, right king. 
But, and, but Samuel says to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And Jesse sent and brought him. I'm at verse 12 now. Now he, the David, was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, was handsome, he's young. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And listen to this, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now think about that. With this anointing and identification comes the ability from the Holy Spirit to do the task that God has given you to do. Now, Jesus Christ has that happen at his baptism. You say, well, I, I see the anointing. The Holy Spirit comes down as he's been baptized now. The Holy Spirit comes down and rests upon him. That's obviously the anointing with the Holy Spirit. But where do you see the identification as the king? Well, that's what comes next. Now, I'll go back to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we're looking again at Jesus' baptism. It says, and when Jesus, I'm at verse 16, was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Here's the identification. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, John, when he saw the Spirit of God coming upon the, the, the Christ, he, he said, now I know who he is. This, this is the one I've been talking about. This is the one I've been prophesying about. But John does not call him, interestingly, John does not call him the king of Israel. You know what he says? He says in John one twenty nine, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I don't think John intended to say that even. John is, is speaking, and he's speaking for the Lord here. He's speaking exactly what God told him to say, but he doesn't call him the king. He calls him the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, the very fact Jesus then is identified in two ways at his baptism, or just shortly thereafter, he's identified by, by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Now, what's interesting about that is the Lamb was known to be a sacrificial animal. And I don't, again, I personally don't think John understood that he's actually making a prophecy that Jesus is going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying he's the Lamb of God, a sacrificial animal that's going to take away the sins of the world. Not cover them, he's going to take them away. Amazing statement. But the fact that, that there was this voice from heaven, which obviously comes from God the Father, saying, this is my beloved son. So he doesn't merely identify him as the Lamb of God. He's identifying him as the Son of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That right there should identify Jesus as not merely the sacrificial lamb for the sins of the world, but the true king of Israel. Why do I say that? In Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3, and I've quoted this different times on this broadcast before, it's, it says this, why do the heathen rage? The peoples imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, the word anointed there is the word that means Messiah. The Jewish people commonly understood, the scholars even of Jesus' day commonly understood, Psalm 2 is dealing with the, the coming of the Messiah. 
And what was prophesied is that the kings of the earth, the rulers of the people, are going to set themselves. And when you think of set yourselves, don't think of, 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 of setting yourselves in a good way. It's think of uh, like digging your heels in like a donkey. Digging it, it, uh, his or her uh, donkey's heels in to resist the way that you want them to go. The kings of the earth are stubbornly setting themselves, and it says against the Lord. So they're setting themselves against God himself and against his anointed, against his Christ. Christ is simply the New Testament word for Messiah in the Old Testament. It's the New Testament word, which means anointed one. They're setting themselves against the Lord and against his Christ, against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We don't want God's rules. We don't want God to tell us what to do. Now, the last verse of Psalm 2 says this, kiss the son. Kiss the son. Now, think about this. Lest, lest, uh, uh, lest he be angry. And you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put or take put their trust in him. Now think about this. Kiss the son. The son is the one who's called in the first part of Psalm 2, the Christ. So when God identifies Jesus as his beloved son, he is identifying Jesus Christ as God's son, the Messiah. Now, what do we conclude from all this? Well, first of all, John's message has still application today, does it not? The fact is Jesus is coming. Now, we're saying he's not coming to earth as the Lamb of God. He's coming to earth as the King in the future. And that coming means we all need to be ready to meet him, just like John was preaching. No vain hopes of riding your family coattails. No vain hopes of of acting like a believer and, and not getting sifted out. John already told us, and his message is still true, that God's going to sift it completely. He's going to know exactly who are his children and who aren't. And so, my friend, please make sure that you know Christ as your personal Savior. But John's message is, 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 again, applicable today because Jesus will completely sort out the true believers from the hypocrites, and your actions need to demonstrate your repentance. John's message certainly has application today. But secondly, God identified Jesus as the promised Savior, the King of Israel. And he did it by his anointing with the Holy Spirit. That's why the Spirit's descending like a dove. And also by his identification by God the Father. So we can now say the Lamb of God has come. John was saying he's coming. We can now say, no, the Lamb of God has come. He's living to save us. He he died to save us. He conquered death to save us. But unlike John, we can now also say the lion of the tribe of Judah, the promised king of Israel, is coming. He's come to save us, yes. Now he's coming to set up his kingdom. Now John, I think, thought that was going to happen during his lifetime. He probably didn't have that one right. God doesn't didn't explain everything to John. But I will tell you this, that Christ is coming. Listen to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the last book of the Bible. It says this, Behold, he, speaking of Christ, is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. John is saying when Jesus comes as king, there will be many people who will be very, very upset because they have lived for themselves and they're not ready. Would that be you, my friend? Would that be you? So what do we do to apply this? Well, first of all, you need to repent and turn to Christ to be saved. And like John the Baptist was challenging the people of his day, don't just talk a good line. God's going to sift through all that. Demonstrate by your life that you're serious. If you're a cheater, if you're a liar, 
Repent of your sin and come to Christ and give that lifestyle up. Show that you're for real. If you're saved, you should follow Christ's example of baptism. He was willing to uh, to go through baptism, and it wasn't even necessary, but it was a way that God used to sanctify him, to set him apart, to show by by the anointing of the Holy Spirit and by the, the identification of God the Father who he was, and it began his public ministry. He was, he was he, he follow his example, but you also need to become a loyal subject of the king. Jesus prayed in John 17, this is eternal life. Speaking to God the Father, they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So since Jesus is the promised Savior, the King of Israel, you need to become his loyal subject. Have you done that? So well, how do I do that? Well, let me just tell you briefly, if you want Christ to be your Savior and you want to repent of your sins, you can ask him right now. Just humble your heart before God and say, Lord, and it's not the words that are going to be important, but your heart of faith. Lord, I need you. I, I want to repent. I want to be forgiven. Please uh, come into my life. Save me. Change me. And help me to show by my actions that I'm serious. You, If you're serious with God, my friend, he'll be serious with you. May the Lord bless you. At Jesus' baptism, we saw the Holy Spirit's special anointing demonstrating the public ministry of our Lord was about to begin, and we saw God the Father's identification of Jesus as his beloved Son. Thus, through Christ's sanctification as baptism, Jesus was set apart as the promised Savior, the Christ who is the rightful King of kings and Lord of lords. Like Saul and David, the first two kings of Israel, Christ's anointing and identification as king does not demand immediate recognition of his rulership. In fact, Psalm 2 predicted the opposition that the rulers of the world would have to God's Son and His promised kingdom. Have you submitted to Him? Remember that both John and Jesus preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What does this mean? It means that if you truly place your faith in Christ as your Lord and King, your life will change. Has that wonderful transformation happened in your life? If not, why not ask God to help you repent and to place your faith completely in His Son? If you have a spiritual need and would like to speak to someone who can help you, you can email us at help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at CalkinsBaptistChurch.com. For those who cannot attend in person, we live stream many of our services. You can access them on our Facebook page by searching for Calkins Baptist Church on that platform. In fact, if you have access to the internet and would like to view a live service right now, you can look up Calkins Baptist Church on Facebook and scroll down the page until you see our live feed. Our normal Sunday service is due to start at 10 a.m., so feel free to join us. Today's broadcast and all sermons in the previous series on the messages of Christ can be found on our podcast at radiobold.com slash Baptist. Also, several months back, we began uploading videos of our services to YouTube. So if you search for Calkins Baptist Church, you'll find videos of our services there. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. Lasting life and light, he 